1 Samuel chapter 8. 1 Samuel chapter 8. I, I'll read the text in just a minute. We're going to read most of the chapter and I'll, I'll read it as I go through it. But I'm beginning a study tonight on the life of Saul. This is Israel's first king. And his story is a story of hopeful beginnings and tragic endings. There is no man in the Bible that had more potential, more promise, yet was a greater failure than was King Saul. And I'm hesitant to call anybody a fool because it is strong, such a strong word. But Saul himself said, I have played the fool. That's what he said of himself. J.C. Baxter has a little book in my office, Mark These Men. And the way he introduces Saul is he says, in some ways he is very big and in others very little. In some ways he is commandingly handsome and in others decidedly ugly. All in one, he is a giant and a dwarf. A hero and a renegade, a king and a slave, a prophet and a reprobate, a man God anointed and a man Satan possessed. And his life can really be summed up in three stages. And that's early promise, later decline, and final failure. And as we, for the next several weeks, go through the biography of Saul, what you're going to find is that every manifestation of the self-life is exhibited in this individual. Whereas David is a man after God's own heart, Saul is a man after his own heart. And we're given the story of Saul not just for historical value, but for spiritual value. Obviously, as the first king of Israel, he stands in an important place, in an important figure in the history of Israel. But like so many other characters in the Bible, we, we look at his life as, as if we are looking at a mirror. He's not just a historical person, he is a representative person. And we're going to go through all of the character traits in his life, and here's what you're going to find, is that those character traits in his life is in your life and it's in mine as well. And you have to die to self or else you become King Saul. I have... Um, I've just began a reading journey that I've wanted to do for a long time, and I've, I've just begun it, and that is I'm reading a biography of every U.S. president that we've had. Now, I'm probably going to stop it at the last two or three, but I, I'm reading a biography. I, I, I'm reading right now Washington Alive by Ron Chernow, and it's about 800 pages biography of Washington, and it's, it's absolutely fascinating. But when I, when I read the biography of men like these, I don't see myself in George Washington. I, I can learn leadership. I can learn things about personality and history. But I don't learn anything about myself when I read the biographies of these men. But I promise you that you will see yourself in King Saul. And as we go through the story, I'm going to emphasize over and over again the characters of the self-life. And it is my sincere prayer. On these Sunday nights, as we go through this life, that our eyes will be opened in new ways to the insidious nature of the nature of man, the Adamic nature. Now, I, I, I want to step back for just a minute, and I, I want to give you some, some background as to what's happening in Israel that gave way to them asking for a king, and particularly this king. 1 Samuel is a book of transitions. Primarily, it is a transition from a theocracy to a monarchy. And the story is told in the lives of three men. That is Saul, David, Samuel, Saul, and David. 
Samuel would be Israel's last judge. Saul would be Israel's first king. David would be their greatest king. There's a transition of leadership. You have uh, the priest Eli to the prophet Samuel. You have the prophet or the judge Samuel. Judge Samuel to King Saul, then from King Saul to King David. Then in 1 Samuel chapter 8, the chapter that we're going to read in just a little bit, there is a transition from a tribal confederacy to a monarchy, a more established, a more unified government. And I thought, could you imagine in our lifetime if we lived through a change of form of government? If our government decided to change the form of government. Our our government, by the way, is a constitutional republic. Some people think it is a democracy. It is not a democracy. It is not designed as a democracy. It's designed as a constitutional republic. In fact, the word democracy does not appear in the Declaration of Independence or even in the Constitution of the United States. In fact, Article 4, Section 4 of the Constitution, just a little civic lesson for the young people, the United States are guaranteed to every state in this union a Republican form of government. So I pledge allegiance to the flag and to the republic, not the democracy, but to the republic for which it stands. Now, the difference is that in a republic, in a republic, there is a charter, there is a bill of rights, or there is a paper, there is a constitution that serves as the grantor of rights. In a democracy, it is majority rule. In a republic, a constitutional republic, you have a bill of rights that, that, that guarantees certain rights that cannot be taken away. In a democracy, it, cannot, it can be taken away if you have enough people, the majority, vote against that. So a much pure majority is a rule by majority. So the majority can always impose its will on the minority. You don't want to live in a world like that. In a democracy, whether it is by direct democracy or, or a representative democracy, but rights are seen as being granted by the government. And if rights are granted by the government, then the rights can be rescinded by the government. But in the republic, rights are seen as being granted by God and government cannot take them away. All right. Are you still with me? All right. So, 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 so the founding fathers said, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are granted, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable Rights. These rights came from God. So in a democracy, government is the grantor of right. In a republic, government is the protector of rights. There is a great difference. But imagine, enough with that, but imagine what it would be like if our nation was to change our form of government. If in the halls of Congress they voted, I don't know what the amendment would be, but we went to a parliamentary form of government like Canada or like Great Britain, or, or we went to a, a straight monarchy with all of their powers invested in one king. I tell you, if we had a change in the form of government, it would be the most consequential change that you and I would ever live through in our life. It would affect every generation from this day forward. That is exactly what's happening in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Israel is a theocracy. They are ruled by God and his appointed men. They have a unique relationship with God. He is their invisible king. 
Israel is the kingdom of God. God rules either directly or indirectly with, with men that he has chosen by him to, to, to lead the nation. There is no separation of church and state. There is no other religion or dissent allowed in this theocracy. They had one king to whom they owed unswerving allegiance and obedience. And in return, that king promised to protect and to provide for them. There was no other nation on the face of the earth that had that kind of arrangement, that had that kind of agreement, that had that kind of relationship with their God. But the people of Israel have surveyed how other nations have done it. And they have come to the conclusion that our form of government, this theocracy, it's lacking in some areas, and we would be better to change our form of government. We want to not be a theocracy, but we want to be a monarchy. And I'm going to tell you, to be sure, it is a step back. It is a decision that is based on expediency. It is the way of human wisdom and not faith in God. And what they thought would solve their problems is only going to create even more problems for them. Now, I have to ask and answer the question that always comes up in 1 Samuel 8, and it is this. Was Israel wrong to ask for a king? And the reason we ask that is because there is very clearly some scripture before this that indicates that God had ordained that they would one day have a king. And if that's so, then what's wrong with asking for a king? Hold your finger right here. We're going to come here and read this text, but go all the way back with me to Genesis 35, and I want to show you the clues that have been dropped in Scripture that one day Israel would be a monarchy. Look, if you would, in Genesis 35 and verse number 11. Genesis 35 and verse 11, And God said unto him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply a nation, and a company of nations shall be of thee, and kings shall come out of thy loins. Look at chapter 49, Genesis chapter 49, the blessing of Jacob upon his sons. And look, if you would, in Genesis 49 and verse number 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. There'll be a king with a scepter from the tribe of Judah. Look at Numbers chapter 24. Numbers chapter 24. Turn with me, please. Numbers chapter 24, and look if you would in verse number 17. This is the prophecy of Balaam. Numbers chapter 24 and verse number 17. He says, I shall see him, but not now. I shall behold him, but not nigh. There shall come a star out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. And then finally, Deuteronomy 17. Deuteronomy chapter 17. And Deuteronomy 17, look at verse number 14. When thou art come unto the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, and shalt possess it, and shalt dwell therein, and shalt say, I will set a king over me, like as all the nations that are about me. Boy, God knew that they would ask this. Thou shalt in any wise set him king over thee, whom the Lord thy God shall choose. 
One from among thy brethren shalt thou set king over thee. Thou mayest not set a stranger over thee which is not thy brother. But he, now this king that you're going to get, he shall not multiply horses to himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to the end, that he shall multiply horses. For as much as the Lord has said unto you, ye shall henceforth return no more that way. Neither shall he multiply wives to himself, that his heart turn not away. Neither shall he greatly multiply to himself silver and gold. It should be when he sitteth upon the throne of his kingdom, that he he shall write him a copy of this law in a book out of that which is before the priests, the Levites. And so God tells Moses that one day they're going to ask for a king and I'm going to give them a king. Here's the restrictions that I'm placing upon this king. So it's clear that God anticipated it. In fact, it is clear that God even planned it. But even though it was God's will for them to one day have a king, I've lived the wrong in asking for a king. Come back, if you would, to 1 Samuel and go to chapter 12. Chapter 12. This is Samuel's final speech to them. Look at 1 Samuel 12 and look, if you would, in verse number 17. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call unto the Lord, and he shall send thunder and rain, that ye may perceive and see that your wickedness is great. Which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking you a king. So Samuel called unto the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. And all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said unto Samuel, Pray for thy servants unto the Lord thy God that we die not. For we have added unto all our sins this evil to ask us a king. Samuel tells them, You were wrong in your request, and they even admit their guilt. So there's a bit of enigma here. God says, yeah, they're going to ask for a king. I'm going to give them a king. These are the restrictions on the king. And when they ask for the king, they're wrong in asking for the king. And I believe that they're wrong in their motive. They wanted a king like all of the other nations. They wanted a king because they rejected the kingship of Jehovah God. And motive is just as important as the request. Why do you want what you want? Why do you pray for what you pray for? You can ask God for the right thing, but for the wrong reason. And Israel would be given a king who would rule over them, this Saul, for 40 years. And this king that they get will be an unmitigated failure. He'll be full of pride and insecurity and, and jealousy. And he's going to be self-seeking and, and self-excusing and self-glorification and, and self-justification. And he's going to be the personification of every character of the self-life. It's going to be found in King Saul. He's the embodiment of every selfish trait that is in my heart and in your heart. And the story of 1 Samuel is that God is going to reject this king. And God is going to anoint another king to sit on the throne of Israel. Saul is a type of the flesh. David is a type of Jesus Christ, whom we ought to want to reign in our life. I view Israel as illustrating the heart of man. And Saul represents the first man that ever sat on that heart, and that is man himself. You came into this world with selfishness already built into your DNA. And that selfishness comes out in our excuses. It comes out in our self-consciousness. It comes out in our self-indulgence. It comes out in our self-will. And dying to self is the essence of the Christian life. 
and God has rejected yourself and has anointed Jesus Christ as rightful king. He is the one that ought to be ruling in our hearts. And I want Jesus to sit on the throne of my life. But in order for that to happen, self has to be dethroned. And at the end of this book, you'll find that David does not replace Saul. And David never imposes himself on the throne of Israel. It is only until Saul is dead that David finally comes and sits on the throne. And if you want Jesus to be the king of your life, self has to die. When self is on the throne, Jesus Christ is dethroned. When Jesus Christ is on the throne, self is dethroned. And the question we have to ask, is there any Saul ruling in my heart? Who sits on the throne of my heart? So looking at Israel and their request this evening, I want to show you three characteristics of the human heart. The first is this. The heart of man has a passion for substitutes. Look, if you would, 1 Samuel 8, look at verse number 1. It came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. Now, the name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second Abiah. They were judges in Beersheba. And his sons walked not in his ways, but turned aside after lucre and took bribes and perverted judgment. So the opening verses gives us the political climate of Israel at this particular time. For 350 years, the nation of Israel has been judged by a number of judges. The book of Judges lists 12 such judges. Samuel is the last of the judges. And Samuel was also the greatest of the judges. He was a great man. We know a lot about his birth. We know a lot about his childhood, his tutelage under Eli. We don't know a lot about Samuel after that. It's interesting that there's only one particular incident in the judging of Samuel that we're giving. And that's in the chapter before when he led the nation of Israel into a military victory against the Philistines. And the nation had peace and they had prosperity under the judging of Samuel. But there became a leadership crisis in the nation as Samuel became an older man. By the way, this, I believe that we are facing a leadership crisis in our nation. In fact, I believe we are facing a constitutional crisis in our nation. We are in dangerous times politically. The crisis in Israel was not as dire. Samuel was getting up in years. He's 60 to 65. His sons were not worthy replacements, and his elders used the situation as an excuse to ask Samuel for a king. And the Bible tells us that, that Samuel's sons were no better than the sons of Eli. Uh, Samuel had set them up as judges in Beersheba, that is the far southern part of, of Israel. And, and they perverted justice and they bribed men and, 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 and that's how that they did things. And they didn't have the integrity that their father did. And so they used the office as a means of personal enrichment. That might remind you of somebody in the news, but that's what they did. Now, now, I want to point this out to you, all right, because I, I think that it is noteworthy. When you compare the sons of Eli and the sons of Samuel, they're pretty much the same. They pretty much turned out the same. So if you are not thinking too carefully about it, then you may think that Samuel and Eli, Eli were the same kind of parents. That where one failed, the other failed. 
I personally do not think that Samuel was as weak a parent as Eli, though his sons turned out like the sons of Eli. Samuel was a prophet. There are no prophecies given of Eli. Samuel was a man of prayer. There are no prayers recorded of Eli. Samuel received his revelation directly from God. Eli got his second-handed. Samuel's death was mourned by the whole nation. We don't read of anybody mourning when Eli died. And just because Samuel's sons turned out to be a rebellious man, it doesn't mean that Samuel was a failure as a father. Because sometimes when children grow up, they have a mind of their own and they're going to go their way. I think that's probably what happened with Samuel's sons. Well, there's a leadership crisis. Look in verse number four. All the elders of Israel gathered themselves together, came to Samuel unto Ramah, and said unto him, Behold, thou art old, and thy sons walk not in thy ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. So it's with this leadership crisis in mind that the elders of Israel come to Samuel with a request. Here's the request. We want a change in government. We have been a tribal confederacy without a centralized government long enough. And we want to structure our government like other nations have done it. The Philistines were a constant threat. The Ammonites, you'll find out in chapter 11, that the Ammonites are pushing and they are a threat as well. And so there is some unrest right there. They're looking at Samuel getting older. They're looking at the prospect of maybe one of his sons becoming a judge. They know that that is not going to do well. And so, so this is the time for us to restructure. We want a king with centralized power. One of the um, commentators that I read, John Woodhouse, he explains it. He says that a king offered a strong, stable, and predictable center of political authority for a nation that otherwise had depend on an unseen God to unite them. The kingship held out the promise of efficient central organization to a nation that lacking such structures tended to lurch from one crisis to the next. The elders of the nation, they, they, they thought that the solutions provided in a Worldly institution would work just as well for a divine institution like Israel. So verse number six, the thing displeased Samuel. When they said, give us a king to judge us, and Samuel prayed unto the Lord. The Lord said unto Samuel, hearken unto the voice of the people and all that they say unto thee, for they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me that I should not reign over them. Catch this. The problem with their request for a king was they already had him. When God delivered the Israelites from Egyptian bondage and gave them his law, he established himself as their king. In a very real sense, the contest with Pharaoh was a contest between one king and the other. There's an interesting study. I won't get into it. We got into it when we studied Judaism. But, but in ancient worlds, there were different forms of treaties and covenants that kings made with their subjects. And scholars have studied the law. The covenant that God made with Israel in Exodus 19, and it follows the pattern a lot of times of those ancient treaties that kings made with their subjects. And so God was establishing himself as their king. God identifies it. And Samuel says, the problem is not that you have with me. The problem is with God. You have rejected God 
as your king. And you know Israel actually had a long history of wanting substitutes from God. Look at verse number 8. According to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them up out of Egypt. Even unto this day, where they have they forsaken me and served other gods, so do they also unto thee. They've always looked for a substitute. I won't turn there, but in Judges chapter 8, Gideon wins a great battle over the Midianites, and they come to Gideon and say, Gideon, we want you to be our king. And Gideon, where he was, says, no. I'm not going to be your king, and my son's not going to be your king. And then Abimelech, his son, decided, yeah, I'll be the king. And for three years, he was a king, and, and he, was, he was a terrible failure. But they believe that the problem is a political problem, and they're proposing a political solution. And in reality, their problem is spiritual, and a political solution can never solve a spiritual problem. It is a rejection of God. Back in chapter 12, I read the verse before, but in verse number, in verse number 12, when ye saw that Nahash, the king of the children of Ammon, came against you, he said unto me, Nay, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. Asking for a king, and you already have a king. We want a substitute. And is that not an indictment of the human heart? How many times does our heart tell us to look to the world for a more suitable solution than what the Word of God provides? We substitute the philosophy of this world for God's Word. We substitute our own will for God's desires. The heart assesses the situation and we rationalize that God's means and God's methods are not for now. Our circumstances are so different and so unique that, that certainly it qualifies for a different solution. And we're experts in self-justification, are we not? We can justify absolutely anything. The crisis that I am in demands that I must take matters in my own hand. The heart of man is always looking for a substitute. Passion for substitute is seen over and over in Israel in Exodus 34. Make us a golden calf that, that would deliver us. It, it, in Numbers chapter 14, appoint us a captain that would take us back to, to Egypt. We were better off there, always looking for a substitute. And I wonder tonight what clear direction, what clear command, what clear word that you and I are looking for a better way for. Passion substitute. Just this week I had a young man come to visit me and he came to argue. That's what he loves to do. He is great at arguing. He's expert at arguing. He wanted to come and argue. He wanted to tell me that the Bible basically justifies anything. Everything is legal from the Bible. And I literally got him to say, standing out in the parking lot, that, that heroin could be okay. That fornication, fornication could be okay. How warped does your mind have to be? To think that you are your own God, that I can just write your own Bible if you want to do that. I, I, I won't tell you what I told him anyway. He just, just, just argues all he's doing. It's not enough to say that this is God's clear command and I will abide by it. No, the heart of man wants a substitute. My circumstances, my situation justifies something else. The heart of man has a passion for substitutes. But then in this story, I see that the heart of man has an aversion to holiness. Look at verse number four again. The elders of Israel gathered themselves together, came to Samuel and the Ramah, and said unto him, Behold, 
Thou art old, and thy sons walk not in thy ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. And that's not just a passing comment because they're going to repeat it again in verse number 19. And ye shall, or verse number 18, ye shall cry out in that day because of your king which ye shall have chosen you. The Lord will not hear you in this day. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. They said, nay, we have a king over us that we may also may be like all the nations that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. They have studied how other nations done, have done it and they have concluded that we ought to be like them. Who else has a government by judges? We don't vote on these judges. We don't appoint these judges. We don't have a capital. We don't have a legislature. I mean, who else does this? There's no central power structure. There's no governmental headquarters. There's no standing army. All of the other nations are more organized and more efficient and they have systems in place. And if we're going to be involved in trade, trade and commerce and have standing, we're going to have to get on with it. We're going to be like them. We want to adopt a more modern type of I think what the thinking does is it ignores that this is what God did not want them to be. Yeah. Hold your finger here. Deuteronomy 14. Would you come back to it? Deuteronomy 14. Are you still with me? Deuteronomy 14. Deuteronomy 14 and verse 1. Ye are the children of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves nor make any baldness between your eyes for the dead. For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God. And the Lord has chosen thee to be a peculiar people unto himself above all the nations that are upon the earth. Back up to chapter 7. Deuteronomy 7. Deuteronomy 7 and verse number 6. For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself above all people that are upon the face of the earth. When you read the law, particularly in the book of Leviticus, I'm telling you God, God, uh, he, 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 he demanded every aspect of their life. God told them what to wear. God told them what they couldn't eat. God told them what day they had to take off of work. I mean, he told them everything. No other nation had a God telling you what you could wear and not wear. And no other nation that somebody said, you can't eat pork or you can't work on the Sabbath day. No other nation. If they live like God told them to live, you could look at a man from any corner of the earth and tell immediately, that is a Jew. And I know that their appearance does not make them holy, I understand that, but their outward reflected what was inward. It was not their custom that made them particular, it was their devotion to God. God demanded everything about them. And by the way, that same command to be separate, to be peculiar, is to mean you, isn't it? Oh, wherefore come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord. Huh? Uh, ye are a chosen generation, royal priesthood, holy nation, a peculiar people. That, that's New Testament what that is. Ye adulterers and adulterers, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God. Whosoever therefore is a friend of the world is an enemy of God. God has redeemed us from the world and he has designed to take us out of the world and take the world out of us. And outward appearances and outward conformity does not mean that you and I are holy. But I tell you that the outward appearance ought to reflect the inward man's what it ought to do. I'm telling you, your heart, your heart and my heart has an aversion 
to holiness. Yeah. You, you cannot say you have a holy heart if you don't have a holy wardrobe. You can't say that you have a holy heart if you don't listen to holy music. You can't say that you have a holy heart if you, I don't want to buy amens, I'm not to that point yet, but you can't say that you have a holy heart as long as you fashion yourself after this world. But the heart of man, my heart and your heart has an aversion to holy standards. Why do you struggle with the music you listen to? Why, why do you struggle still with the things that you look at on the internet? Why, why, why do we get upset and all bound up when somebody rebukes us for worldly things? Why is it hard for some Christians to accept that we are peculiar, not odd, but we are peculiar and we ought to be in this world? I'll tell you why. It's because in the heart of man, there's a pushback, there's resistance, there's an aversion to holiness. The heart of man has a passion for substitutes. The heart of man has an aversion for holiness. But in our text, the heart of man has an immunity to wisdom. Look at verse number 10. Samuel told all the words of the Lord unto the people that asked of him a king. Now watch this. He said, this will be the man of the king that shall reign over you. He will take, somebody count them. He will take your sons and appoint them for himself, for his chariots, to be his horsemen, and some shall run before his chariots. He will appoint him captains over thousands and captains over fifties and, and will set them to ear his ground and to eat his, he reap his harvest and to make his instruments of war and instruments of his chariots. And he will take your daughters to be confectionaries and to be cooks and to be bakers. And he will take your fields and your vineyards and your olive yards, even the best of them, and give them to his service. He will take the tenth of your seed and of your vineyards and give to his officers and to his service. He will take your men servants and your maid servants and your goodliest young men and your asses and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your sheep and ye shall be his servants and ye shall cry out in that day because of your king which he shall have chosen you and the Lord will not hear you in that day. Solomon's the same to stand before him. It says, God will give you what you've requested. He'll let you go down this road, but be forewarned. It's not what you think it's going to be. What you're going to end up with is you're going to end up with an oppressive, tyrannical government in which the government is going to take from you. Six times, if I counted right, he's going to take. Government will become a monster that doesn't provide anything but takes everything. He's going to impose heavy taxes on you. He's going to confiscate your property. He's going to draft your sons and constrict your daughters into his service. And if anything should have gotten their attention, it's the last statement in verse 17. And ye shall be his servants. Weren't you that one time before? Do you want to be that again? You are going right back into servitude, but this time it's not to another government, it is to your own government. By the way, it's still true today. When people want a government to take care of all of their needs, then they're going to sign away a whole lot more than they bargained for. However much you think this king is going to give you, he's going to take a whole lot more back from you. 
And by the way, read back. We have time. Read back through this. Come back to verse 11. But let me highlight something else to you. This will be the man of the king that shall reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for himself, for his chariots, to be his horsemen. Some shall run before his chariots. He will appoint him captains over thousands and captains over fifties will set them to eat his ground, to reap his harvest, to make his instruments of war and instruments of his chariots. He would take your daughters to be confectionaries and be cooks and be bakers. He would take your fields and your vineyards and your olive yards, even the best of them, and give them to his servants. He'll take the tenth of your seed and of your vineyards and give to his officers and to his. So, do you get that? Government is going. I'm not just preaching against government, all right? Thank God for government. But what he's saying is that this form of government that you're asking for, it is going to be for him and for him and and for himself is what it's going to be. You say, did it ever come true? Solomon, great builder, great builder. Seven years to build the temple, 13 years to build his own house. It takes a lot of workers, doesn't it? Yep. Look over here, 1 Kings chapter 5. 1 Kings chapter 5. 1 Kings chapter 5 and verse number 13. And King Solomon raised a levy. A levy can be either a tax or it can be uh, an enlistment. Raised a levy out of all Israel, and the levy was 30,000 men. He's going to put them into labor to start building his temple. Look down in verse number 15. Solomon had three score. And 10,000 that bear burdens and three, four score thousand hewers in the mountain. That's 70 to 80,000 men who are forced into labor for his building programs. Look, look at chapter 12, 1 Kings chapter 12. Look at this. Solomon's dead. His son Rehoboam's coming on the throne now. Look what these men do. 1 Kings 12 and verse 1, Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel were come to Shechem to make him king. It came to pass when Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who was yet in Egypt, heard of it, for he was fled from the presence of King Solomon, and Jeroboam dwelt in Egypt. Then they sent and called him, and Jeroboam and all the congregation of Israel came and spake unto Rehoboam, saying, Thy father made our yoke grievous. Now therefore thou make the grievous thou therefore make thou the grievous service of thy father and his heavy yoke which he put upon us lighter and we will serve. Samuel said he's going to take he's going to take he's going to take. That's a whole lot of taking is what it is. And finally, when Solomon Solomon is dead, they come to Rehoboam and said, "Look, man, you're going to have to back off. You're going to have to lower taxes. It, it, it's too much." Well, look at him in verse ten. The young men that were grown up with him spake unto him, saying, Thus shalt thou speak unto this people that spake unto thee, saying, Thy father made our yoke heavy, make thou it lighter than us. Thou shalt also say unto them, My little fingers shall be thicker than my father's loins. And now, whereas my father did lay you with a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father chastised, chastised you with wits, I will chastise you with a scorpion. That's a lot of taking. And by the way, I could point out right here, when you serve sin and you serve self, it's going to take a lot. I can tell you, Jesus is not that way. I tell you, he gives a whole lot more than he takes. Come back to 1 Samuel 8. Samuel stands before him and says, he's going to take, he's going to take, he's going to take, he's going to take, he's going to take. You're going to become his servants. So verse number 19. 
Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, Nay, but we will have a king over us. There's nothing Samuel can say to sway them. There's no amount of warning that he can give them to get them to reconsider. Because once the heart is settled on a matter, it becomes immune. It shuts out the voices of others. And sometimes all that you can do with a person is just let him have his way. I've tried to help you. You're not listening. You'll just have to go find out the hard way. And Samuel gives them wise words. Just trust in the Lord as your king. He will give you a king in his own time. But they want what they want right now. We want to be like other nations. We are convinced that a king is a solution to all of our problems. And Samuel says he's going to take and he's going to take and he's going to take and it's for himself. And and as soon as he's done speaking, they've already formulated the response in their mind. They're waiting for him to take a breath so they can say, nay, but we will have a king over us. And I want you to see that's the heart of man. Your heart and my heart. Has a passion for substitutes, an aversion to holiness, an immunity to wisdom. A preacher, if I know my heart, that's the problem. You don't. What is your heart telling you? Be careful. Just follow your heart. You better check that. And here's the silver lining. Piano player, come. The silver lining is that when God saves you, he gives you a brand new heart. That you don't have to serve God. You don't have to serve Christ with that old heart. He gives you a new heart. And the only way, the only way that you can be satisfied with the reign of Jesus Christ in your life and the only way that you sincerely desire holiness and the only way that you hunger to hear God's word and God's voice in God's way is for him to give you a new heart. And without that new heart, you're going to follow the pathway of Israel and you're going to make the same mistakes and the same justifications. And I tell you that even still, even though you're saved, that old man, that old heart wants to raise itself up and try to pull you back. You have to recognize how deceitful and how deceived your heart really is. Because if you don't, you're going to end up with a king just like Saul in your heart. And it is a king like David that wants to sit on your heart. The heart of man seen in the nation of Israel.